Acts 5, verse 12 to 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senates of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, They were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. 
And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudas rode up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the case I so in the present case I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Heather. Hi, family. As you can tell, I'm not John. My name is Grant. If you guys are new here to Pillar, I'm normally up here with a guitar in my hand. That's where my confidence is. Uh, not necessarily speaking in front of people. But it's my pleasure today to uh, bring the word of the Lord and expound on it while Kinto gets to lead worship for us. Happy Mother's Day. Did anybody call their mothers already? No, it's okay. You got another day. That's the beauty of living in Okinawa. We have some extra time. We get reminded on one day and then we can talk to our moms and next. Um, but before we jump into our passage, let's go ahead and pray. God of hope and courage, you call each of us to bear witness to your son in this broken world. Open our hearts to receive your truth this morning that we may see and hear from you. Empowering God, you called your disciples to share the good news of your son, Jesus, to the ends of the earth. They were a common and motley crew like, like us, and they were from the margins of society of their day. Sometimes we feel on the margins of society in life, and we wonder if you can use us. Remind us today as we look at your word that power comes from you and you alone. Give us a courageous and willing spirit so that we may boldly proclaim that Jesus, you are our hero. Amen. So I love a good story. Uh, whether it's a book or a movie or a play, just something about the narrative and all the twists and turns between the, the protagonist and antagonist. We'll go ahead and take this guy off. Um, and the image used, it's just really appealing to me. Uh, and it's not just me. My family loves stories too, especially my boys. They'll stay up for hours and hours on end when they should be asleep. Uh, reading stories and listening to stories like the Greek myths or the Hobbit or even the Harry Potter series. And no matter how often they've 
read the books or heard the stories, um, they're always enthralled in what is actually happening. Uh, and they can't help until the next day tell me what was going on in the stories and tell me what their heroes were doing. And so I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one that likes stories, and my boys are not the only ones. I'm willing to bet that we all love a good story. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts that has all the elements of a great story. And it offers a glimpse into what was happening in the first century church. So we've already heard the passage read, but if you don't have your Bibles or your Bible app open, go ahead and open to Acts 5, 12 to 42. That's where we'll be today. So last week, John shared with us from Acts 4, and we saw that Jesus' words and his works are confidently proclaimed by common people, focusing on Christ over conspiracy in the face of persecution. Now today, we're going to continue that narrative of common people proclaiming Christ in persecution with our story here in chapter 5 of Acts. As I was preparing for this sermon I was reading the passage over and over and over, and I kept seeing it as different acts of a play or or different acts of a story or scenes in a movie. And so as I read it and read it, I kept seeing three different acts and with a couple of different scenes each. And we're going to walk through all those this morning. The first, we're going to see scene one. It's it's a one-scene act, and it's going to be a wide-angle shot of a summary of the apostles' ministry. And then our our camera angle is going to tighten, and we're going to see a different scene where the apostles are going to be charged and arrested and tried. And then our last scene, our Act 3 scene, is going to pan out, and we're going to have one final scene of a summary of what was happening. So last week in Chapter 4, we started to see that persecution is starting to come against the church. The apostles and early Christians, they still continue to proclaim Jesus as the hero of their story. This all stands from Acts 1-8, where Jesus, right before he ascends back into heaven to sit on his kingly throne, he tells his followers, you will receive power and will be my witness. And so today, we're going to see that spirit-empowered believers bear witness to Jesus regardless of their circumstances. The entire book of Acts, so far we have seen as the Holy Spirit acting through the apostles for the good of all people and the glory of Jesus. John 15, 26-27 tells us the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity, and it is to bear witness to Jesus. John says, But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness. And so as believers who have been given the helper, the spirit, he dwells within us. We bear witness to Jesus. And that's what we see happening here in Acts. The early church is bearing witness to Jesus. They are telling their story with Jesus as a hero. And now this doesn't always come easy. For some of us, it's it's even really hard. Even the disciples in the early church felt this. And in chapter 4, we hear one of their early prayers. Chapter 4, verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. At the end of chapter 4, the believers prayed for boldness to continue to witness in persecution. And now here in chapter 5, we see that prayer being answered and coming to fruition. So we'll go ahead and jump into our first scene. It's a one-act scene, and it's the narrative of the apostles' ministry. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick onto the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So this first scene, it's a wide-angled shot like in a movie where a bunch of different things are happening. And we see that it is a summary of the apostles' ministry. We see the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles as their prayer is answered for boldness. We see signs and wonders and healings taking place. We see that ministry is happening, and it's happening in public. It says that they were in Solomon's portico. That's outside of the temple, part of the complex. They were in public, and it is happening among the people. It's not a private thing. We're seeing that people are loved. In in chapter 4, it says that they were all together, and they shared everything that they have. Here, they are all together in Solomon's portico. People are being loved. People are being saved. They're being healed, and they're being delivered. This is the ministry of the apostles. Who would be against that, right? Their numbers were growing exponentially. 3,000 in one day and then 5,000 in another. And all of that growth is not going unnoticed by the powers that be. As this scene, this montage is ending, verse 17 is going to start and say, But the high priest rose up. Sadly, we're going to see that there are some who are against people being healed, saved, and delivered because it is done name of Jesus. The temple leadership are offended. The text is going to tell us that they are jealous. They see the temple as being overrun by by what they would have called a cult. The early church was proclaiming that the very same Jesus who was crucified has been raised and is ruling and at his name people are being saved, healed and delivered. They are doing ministry openly and publicly in Jesus name. But the culture, they want our ministry to be private. You see, you won't get in trouble for for being private with your faith. You won't get in trouble for being private with your ministry. You won't have problems as long as your relationship with Jesus is just between you and him. But we're going to see that the apostles, they get in trouble for being public with their message about Jesus. Just like back in the early days of the church, Christianity today is not held in high esteem in our culture. You see, we're going to have issues at work. We're going to have issues at school. We're going to be called a bigot or intolerant because of our worldview that Jesus is the hero of our story. When we are on mission with God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will face opposition. I mean, Jesus told us that, right? There will be opposition just like the first century church began to see here because of their public witness and profession of Jesus, not just the deeds that they were doing. I'm a big fan of the band Skillet, if anyone's ever heard that band before. Uh, I always have been since around 1996 when I went to my young, or my, when I was younger, went to the fairgrounds in my little town, and they played there. I think they played there because uh, no one knew who they were, and it was the cheapest band that they could get at the time. Um, But I really loved the the band ever since then. And the, the lead singer, John Cooper, Um, In his book, Awake and Alive to Truth, he kind of tells a story um, that illustrates this. The band Skillet, their first album comes out in 1996. And it wasn't until about 2010 that they start to get famous. They start to get popular when their album Awake comes out. 
I was in Afghanistan late 2009, early 2010 when this album came out. And I was on my way to work when I hear this song off of this album playing on a co-worker's radio. And I just thought to myself, man, these guys must be getting popular because this guy, a non-Christian, is listening to their music. Now, the song that he was listening to was called It's Not Me, It's You. Um, He was having a really hard time. He'd just gone through a really ugly divorce, and this song really spoke to him. But again, I couldn't help but think this non-Christian is listening to a Christian band. These guys must be getting popular. So in 2010, they start to get really popular, and Skillet starts to go on tour with some really big-name bands. After one of these shows, um, the tour manager and the uh, the show um, the, the guy who runs the show comes up to John and says, John, I need to tell you something because no one else is going to tell you the truth. And he tells John, he says, you guys could be the next biggest band in the world. You just have to strike. You could be the next biggest band because you have the sound, you have the look. You could be the next biggest band, but you need to stop talking about Jesus. They say, you need to disassociate from Christian music. You should stop playing Christian music festivals. Just stop talking about Jesus. He said, you can get your message out there more if you stop talking about Jesus. If you just talked about the social implications of Christianity. If you talked about the poor and feeding people in Africa. He said, talk about the oppressed and talk about goodness and light. Just stop talking about Jesus. The culture They want our ministry like that. They want our ministry and our relationship with Jesus to be private, just like it did with the first century church. As we're going to see here, as uh, as this scene is closing and scene two is coming into view, the apostles are going to be arrested for their public ministry in Jesus' name. Our story continues, verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Here we have the the first scene in our second act of this narrative. It's the act of the arrest and release of the apostles. I just want to give a quick note about the people that we see in this passage. Uh, There are two groups. We see the priests. They ran the day-to-day temple operations. They're the ones who sacrificed um, the offerings. They are the ones who administered all of the religious rites. And then the second group we see are the Sadducees. Now, they didn't run the day-to-day operations of the temple, um, but they were considered experts in what it meant to interpret the law. Uh, They were very much like the Pharisees. But the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the Sadducees, they were the political aristocracy. They were born into power, and so they have the means to study the Scripture. Whereas our Pharisees... They were more like the common folk, but they had gained enough wealth to be able to study the scriptures. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in all the supernatural things like the resurrection or even angels. Whereas the Pharisees, they were more inclined to believe in the supernatural because of the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. And so our text tells us that the high priest and all who are with him were filled with jealousy. The priests and the Sadducees, they were the religious elite of, the t- of this day. They had the power, and now this, what they would have seen as a cult, had gained popularity and at an astounding rate. Earlier in our passage, it said the people held them in high esteem. The people of the day held the apostles in high esteem in verse 13. And maybe the Sadducees and the Pharisees saw their power as being threatened. But at any rate, they throw the apostles in public prison so that, one, they can be publicly shamed, 
They wanted to stop them from preaching, and they wanted to dissuade them from continuing in their ministry. The last time the apostles were on trial, back in chapter 4, they were only threatened and charged not to speak in Jesus' name. We see here that the, the persecution is getting greater. They are taking it to the next level. They throw them in public prison. Verse 19 continues on. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple. Speak to the people all the words of this life. Now our, our scene fast forwards into the night and into the prison where the apostles are. And I think God is using some of his humor here. Uh, some people don't read the Bible with humor. I do. Uh, I see this angel jailbreaking the apostles. I think it's kind of funny. I can imagine God speaking to Jesus, saying, The Sadducees, they're upset that you're being proclaimed in the world. You know what? Let's jailbreak them. And let's lose an angel. They don't even believe in angels. Some, some humor I think God put in there. So the apostles are in prison, and we have an angel who jailbreaks them. Here's some more humor. Uh, why are the apostles put in prison? First, for talking about Jesus. What does the angel command them to do once they're jailbroken? Speak about Jesus. I can imagine the apostles like, hey, we're in here because we're talking about Jesus. You want us to go back and talk about Jesus? Okay, let's do that. Um, but they're jailbroken. They're told to speak about Jesus. Uh, in Acts 3.15, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter calls Jesus the author of life. And now the angel of the Lord is telling them to stand in the temple and speak to all of the, be- the people the words of this life. They're commanded to go back out in public and resume their witness, preaching the gospel that leads to life. And that's what they do. Verse 21 says, And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the apostles followed the command from the Lord. They go witness in the temple. The scene closes with them returning to the very place where they had been arrested, preaching the very same words of life for which they were arrested for. It reminds me of a story back in 1600s England. There lived a a man named John. I know that's super descript, right? An English guy named John. Um, But... He had recently left the British Army after three years, and he became a tinkerer, which is someone who mends pots and pans, um, forks and knives and the such. And John is really poor. He's not educated, but he comes to faith in Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit, and he decides he's going to go preach in the streets of London, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a little bit problematic for John, as the Religion Act of 1592 had made it illegal to attend a religious gathering outside the Church of England with more than five people outside of their immediate family. It reminds me of our COVID restrictions. You can't go eat dinner with more than four people outside of your family. Well, they they couldn't have a church service with more than five people. So the punishment for doing so was imprisonment or potential banishment or even execution. But John goes to London, and he preaches in the streets, and he tells thousands the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands hear the gospel through him. But eventually he is arrested, and he's taken before the magistrate. The magistrate sees that he is poor, and he he needs to still support his family. He has a wife and children, and so the magistrate has mercy on him. The charges levied against John are that he go directly to prison. But the magistrate says, John, if you promise never to preach... Again, I will let you go right now. John replies, if you let me go, I will be in the street tomorrow morning. I will be in London. You need to know that I will not be silenced to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. 
So John spends 12 years in prison for refusing to stop preaching the gospel. And while he's in prison, he writes a book. It's a book that is probably the most popular Christian book outside of the Bible, and it has been regarded as one of the most significant works of religious theological fiction. That John was none other than John Bunyan. And while in prison, he writes The Pilgrim's Progress. He's in prison and in chains for refusing to preach the gospel. John Bunyan, he's eventually released because the laws were changed and political climates are relaxed. And what does he go and do? He goes back to the streets of London and preaches the gospel. Just as the apostles left their prison and went and preached the gospel, so was the story of John Bunyan. Now, our next scene in this narrative, it's starting to fade in, and it's a great gathering of people. It's a gathering of the religious elite, and we're going to see that the charges are brought against the apostles. Continuing in verse 21, it says, Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. The high priest gathers the entire judicial system of Israel, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, to discuss what to do with these apostles. There could have been upwards of 116 judges there at this time. And they call for the apostles to be brought. And we have this awkward exchange. Can you imagine being the soldiers who have to go get the prisoners, come back to the council and give this report? Um, So, guys, we went to the prison. Um, Good news, the locks worked, the doors were locked. Uh, The guards, they're still standing. They were awake. They weren't sleeping on duty. Uh, They're still there. But we opened the doors. There was nobody inside. And the chief priests, even the temple captain, they're they're probably visibly confused. Like, what are you saying? So you put the people in prison, right? Yes. And then we told you to go get the people from prison, right? Yes. You went there and the doors were locked? Yep. The guards were awake? Yes. You open the doors and there's nobody there? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Imagine being those people having to give that. They're, they're visibly confused at what's happening. Like, they're just in total loss for words. They're like, what are, what are we going to do? And then they have a little bit of relief from this situation of what's happening. Verse 25 continues, uh, And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you've put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. When the captain and officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This is the offense. This is where the council's issue lies. This is what the apostles are accused of. They said, We charged you not to teach in this name. They couldn't even bring themselves to say their name. This is the issue they had with the apostles. They were teaching in the name of Jesus. It's not necessarily what they were doing. They couldn't even say his name, so church, we should. Somebody say Jesus. Jesus. Amen. I was listening to some uh, Pentecostal sermons this week, and I told my wife I would do that. We had to have some interaction. 
Um, so it is in Jesus' name that all of this was happening. It is his name that is above every name. It is his name that is worthy of all glory. And we should never cease to call out his name. And look at this other accusation that they were given. It says, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Basically, they were saying, look, this silly and senseless teaching doctrine of yours is really not even worth taking notice of. You have proclaimed it so much that it's the talk of the town. It reminds me of our Gospel to Okinawa initiative. Maybe one day that charge will be laid on us. You have filled Okinawa with the Gospel of Jesus. Wouldn't that be something to be accused of spreading the Gospel so much here in Okinawa that that accusation would be laid against us? And then they accuse the apostles of intending to bring Jesus' blood on them. But we see in Matthew's account, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the people, they didn't want Jesus to be released. They wanted Barabbas. And Pilate says, this man's blood is not on my hands. And and then what, what does the council say? They say, his blood be on us and on our children. The blood of the Lamb is already on all those who have sinned. And then verse 29 continues, But Peter and the apostles answered. And so we have now scene three in act two. We have the the apostles' response to the council's accusations. And I love this. The camera angle, it, it tightens onto Peter, who is giving a response for all of the apostles. The Holy Spirit has filled Peter. It's not the same Peter that we see before the resurrection He's no longer denying Christ. He's no longer cowering in the dark. He is bold and he is standing before the entire judiciary council of Israel. All of the powerful people are there. The movers, the shakers, all the guys who can make things happen are there. And Peter, he's about to give them the gospel. He's full of boldness in the spirit. And so he says, so you guys don't want me to preach about Jesus. The council's probably like, yeah. And he says, well, since you're all here, i got a sermon. And so verse 29 continues. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter preaches the gospel in this monologue, in this scene. And first he says, we can't stop testifying in Jesus' name as you would have us do. We must obey God. When John Bunyan was was in prison and he was given the chance to recant and say that he would stop preaching if let out, he's recorded as saying, I will stay in prison until the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, I must obey him who commanded me to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And Peter continues his monologue, and he contrasts what the religious leaders wanted with Jesus and what God's plan was. It says, they killed him, Jesus. The religious elite killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. This is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 21, where being hung on a tree is said to show that you have been cursed by God. The religious leaders of this day, they wanted Jesus to be cursed, they wanted him to be shamed, and they wanted him to be removed from public memory. 
But God's sovereign plan was different. God's plan was that Jesus would be exalted and he would be seated at his right hand, giving him the highest authority, the name above every name, for him to be the leader and savior of every soul. For what the religious leaders meant for shame, God used to make as a way for forgiveness. Even in their act of sentencing Jesus to death, there can be repentance and forgiveness. It's what Peter is calling for. Jesus can give forgiveness to Israel. Jesus has that power and authority. There can be repentance because of Jesus. It's interesting here that Peter is preaching the entire council as he's giving them a clear witness of how they can be forgiven and reconciled to God. It's his way of saying that no matter what you may have done or where you may have been, These guys might have been in the crowd that day with Barabbas saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They may have asked for Jesus to be crucified. Give us Barabbas. But God, through Jesus, brings salvation if you would repent and believe that he can forgive you. And that's still true today for us. Uh, That's good news. No matter what we have done or no matter what we are doing, the Father is calling us to repentance through Jesus. If you're outside the family of God, he is gently calling, O sinner, come home. If you are inside the family, he is calling you to believe that he is better. Believe that Jesus is better than riches. Believe that Jesus is better than all of the voices around us. That he is better than our position. That Jesus is better than whatever it is, fill in the blank. Jesus is better. Peter continues his monologue and says to the council, We are witnesses to this power, and we are ready to testify under oath that we saw him alive after the resurrection. He defeated death. We saw him ascend to heaven so that we, he would send the Holy Spirit, the helper to us who obey him, to be able to conquer our own sin. And it's not just us who testify to this. He himself, the Holy Spirit of God, is a witness to these things. You've seen our signs and wonders. You think that's us? It's not us. It's the Holy Spirit through us. Peter is calling for the repentance of Israel, but he's also calling for it to us today. It is in the name of Jesus where life is, the name of Jesus that brings repentance. And where repentance is found, Jesus gives forgiveness. He is the Savior. Any gospel without Jesus is not good news. It's no gospel at all. Well, you can imagine that a sermon like that, pointing out people's sin and calling them to repentance, didn't go over very well. Verse 33 continues, When they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But an unlikely ally is going to rise up. Enter the, the, the scene, a new character. Scene 4, Act 2, is a Pharisee. The camera pans from Peter's monologue, pans over to the council, and then zooms in on Gamaliel. And this is Gamaliel's response. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. We see here Gamaliel, he is a Pharisee. Uh, He's held in high honor by the people. Uh, Most Pharisees at that time, they were held in more honor than the Sadducees because they didn't have all of the political ties to Rome. Uh, The Pharisees were seen as the people's teachers, if you will. And the Sadducees, they knew that. And so they would often defer to the Pharisees in matters that could 
cause some tension when there is a public opinion on the line. They would defer to the Pharisees. And you can see this prominence when he has the apostles taken out so that he can speak to the council freely. Now, you might be asking, if the apostles are out of the room, how does Luke know what was said by Gamaliel? Uh, We're not completely certain how, uh, but I believe it is completely possible that a young teacher by the name of Saul is among those gathered. Now Saul one day meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his entire life has changed. But not only his life, he's given a new name. He's renamed Paul. Later in Acts, when giving an account of who he is, Paul says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Dr. Luke and and Paul, they share missionary journeys. And I I think it's completely possible that Luke gets this story from Paul because Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, probably told Luke of what Gamaliel said for the apostles. Verse 35 continues. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Then after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. And let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Gamaliel's basic premise in his response is basically this. Guys, I know you you want to kill them, but let's not act too rashly. Then he cites two historical examples the, the council would have undoubtedly known. Um, because just like this Christian, what they would have seen as a cult, had a large gathering of followers, these two examples, they gathered around them people as well. But then their leader was killed, and the followers dispersed, and nothing came of that. And so he says to the council, let's leave these guys alone. If this movement is of man, it will fail. It will fade from public. It will be fine. But if it's of God... If this is God's plan, if it's his plan, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And if we continue to fight this, we might even be found opposing God. I can hear in his voice a tone that says, and I don't want to be on that side of the battle. Basically what Gamaliel says is we don't need to do this because God doesn't need us to stick up for him. His plans will happen. And here we are some 2,000 years later after this meeting. We're still talking about Jesus. And so now our narrative is starting to draw to a close. And we have our third and final act. It's the rest of the story. And again, it's in the form of another wide-angled exit montage. Verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so the council take Gamaliel's advice, and they don't kill the apostles. They call them back into their meeting, 
But as we have seen, their persecution, the apostles' persecution, is getting more intense. The council can't just let them go. They've already tried that. First, the apostles are arrested and instructed not to teach in Jesus' name, and they're released. They go continue preaching in Jesus' name. And then they're arrested and thrown into prison where an angel jailbreaks them. What do they do? They go back out and preach Jesus again. And so now they're, they're not killed, they're only beaten, though killing the apostles is not out of the realm of possibility, as we'll see later on in chapter, uh, later on in Acts with Stephen. Some of your translations may say instead of the apostles were beaten, it might say that they were flogged. This is the, the 40 minus 1 lashing with the cat of nine tails. And this is what was required for offenses against the Jewish law. Many people actually died from this standard beating. And it's very similar to what Jesus endured prior to going to the cross. The apostles, they are beaten or flogged and told not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they're released. Now, as they leave the council, what are they doing? It says that they are rejoicing for their suffering for the name of Christ. Jesus told them that they would be persecuted for his name. And now they're rejoicing because they're accounted worthy to suffer for his glory and fame. Now, as this final scene is drawing a close and it's fading to black, we see the apostles there every day teaching in the temple. They're in public. And then from house to house, they have missional communities that gathered. They never stopped teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They never stopped telling everyone that Jesus is the hero of their story. And so here are the final thoughts that I want to leave you with. You might be saying, that's a great story, Grant, but what do we do with it? I have one point of application, and that is tell your story with Jesus as the hero. Let's look at that final scene one more time, but work backwards. It says, the Christ is Jesus. The Messiah, the Savior is Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is my Savior. So you tell your story, you start with Jesus. He is the beginning and the ending of your story. When you start your day and you see the world and all of your interactions through the gospel lens, that Jesus is the hero, your entire viewpoint changes. You see persecution and daily struggles differently. You see them as opportunities to glorify Jesus. So I want you to reflect on your story. Believe that the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus is better than anything, and share your story. You can start small, telling your story in maybe a fight club or missional communities. It says that they went house to house. And tell of what Jesus is doing in your life. It doesn't have to be a grand thing like, I had cancer and then Jesus healed me. Though that might be some of your stories. But small victories can showcase Jesus' glory all the same. Like, I used to have major anger issues. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is helping me be slow to anger. Imagine what Pillar Church could look like today if we regularly rehearsed the gospel with each other in this way, telling our stories with Jesus as our hero. Imagine being accused of spreading the gospel all over this land like the apostles in our passage. So reflect on your story. Look for the evidences of God's grace in your own life how Jesus is working out your salvation and your sanctification, and then tell someone. 
Each week we set aside, or each month we set aside time in our worship gathering to hear gospel stories from each of you. We want to hear how Jesus and the gospel is shaping your life. It builds us up in our boldness and it points our hearts to Jesus. As the Holy Spirit prompts us to tell our stories, others may see Jesus and say, He's my hero too. So I want you to contact Nicole at PillarOkinawa.com. Tell her that you want to tell your story in this gathering. Imagine telling our stories with Jesus as the hero, no matter our circumstances. Every filmmaker leaves their mark on films that they create. When you see a Michael Bay film, you know it's a Michael Bay film. When you see a Spielberg film, you know Steven Spielberg at the helm. What if Jesus being our hero was our mark as Christians? When the world hears our stories, they're like, they've got to be Christians. This Jesus is at the center of their story. He is their hero. They believe the gospel deeply. He is their center. And so, Pillar, may the Holy Spirit empower us to bear witness to Jesus and tell our stories, letting him be the hero. And now John's going to come up and lead us in our confession During this time, reflect on your story. When has Jesus been the center? And confess accordingly.